Dose of Leadership podcast, episode 47. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast. Before we start with the interview, I wanted to pass along. In May, I have two more leadership coaching slots available. If you're interested in taking your leadership game to the next level, I am available for one-on-one personal coaching. We can do that via Skype. If you're close enough, we can do it in person. You can go to my website, doseofleadership.com, and click on the coaching menu item, and you can learn more information. What I can offer to you, i got 25 years of practical leadership experience, both on a personal and professional level. I've seen a lot of things, and I'm willing to share them with you and help you become the leader that you were meant to be. Remember, like I've always said on this podcast, we all have an opportunity and an obligation to become a leader. No matter where you're at in life, no matter what your title is, we are all capable of being better leaders. Again, thanks for tuning into the show. I appreciate all your support. I love the feedback. I'm getting more and more, and I try to answer every single one. In fact, I'm committed to answering every single email, every single Twitter or Facebook matches that I receive. Again, thanks for your support, and here's the interview. Well, I'm so thrilled to have on my show today, Orrin Woodward. He's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Launching a Leadership Revolution. In addition to Orrin's first solo book, Resolve, 13 Resolutions for Life, is listed in the top 100 all-time best leadership books, and he was awarded the 2011 Independent Association of Business Leader of the Year Award. Oren has co-founded two multi-million dollar leadership companies and is the chairman of the board of Life Business. He has a Bachelor of Science from GMI, EMI, now Kettering University, in Manufacturing Systems Engineering. He holds four U.S. patents and won an exclusive National Technical Benchmarking Award. He lives in Michigan and Florida, and he's got a brand new book out. just came out a couple weeks ago called Leader Shift, a call for Americans to finally stand up and lead. Oren, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Are you ready to give us a dose today? <laughs> you bet. I'm glad to be here, Richard. Well, gosh, Warren, you know, I've been a, uh, I told you in the pre-interview that, uh, I owe a lot to my speaking career to, uh, reading, launching a leadership revolution. A lot of the precepts in there finally crystallized. I always had this hunger, this burning desire to talk about leadership. And that book helped me crystallize a lot of the thoughts. And, and, um, and so thank you for that. And, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you got passionate about leadership. You know, I was an engineer and I loved, uh, I loved what I did as an engineer. Um, but I just realized that there was kind of a limit and I was looking, I was looking to get into something that, um, as you perform, so shall you bonus. So through the craziest chain of events and, um, going, getting my master's down at University of Michigan, which was the number two business school, I finally stumbled across a leadership engine and started just training. I started reading every book I could on leadership, started listening to Zig Ziglar, uh, Charlie Tremendous Jones, all of the best. Uh, uh, motivational and leadership uh, experts and uh, fell in love with the process and then started training uh, small business owners on leadership field. And uh, eventually, Chris Brady and myself started, as we were doing all these training modules, we said, well, let's kind of capture this. So we wrote it all together. And that was kind of the formation of the book, Launching a Leadership Revolution. And uh, when it released, uh, it got accepted through Hachette Book Group, which is, you know, Business Plus and, um, man, it just took off. It went to, uh, number one bestseller 
And that kind of launched it. And then since then, man, I've just been going around the country and helping people learn about leadership and how important it is because everything rises and falls on leadership. And there's so much that is represented as leadership that's really not leadership at all. And it's not even really management. It's just kind of, um, uh, it's just kind of there, I guess. Yeah. You know, one, th- one thing that's great about your work too. And again, it's, and I, ha- last summer I did probably one of my best presentations that I had and I started incorporating and what's really, and again, kind of this gnawing and trying to crystallize your thoughts. And what I love about you is that you incorporate not only the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mindset of leadership, which I think is critical for today's kind of turnaround in today's society, but also the historical references. You're a very big student of history and I appreciate that. And I started incorporating uh, kind of the lessons from the founding fathers in my presentations. And I noticed, and I've, and I've noticed a difference and change in the audience reaction that there's hunger and there's this thirst for that knowledge. Would you tell me about it? You must see that from your level as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, if you just teach uh, leadership in a vacuum, you know, just like here's the principle, here's the principle, it tends to be dry and people lose. Well, now why is character important? But when you talk about a George Washington, and a George Washington, after he had defeated the British, he still had all of the weapons. He still was in charge of the military. And they said when uh, George Washington proved his character, when he surrendered his sword to the civil authorities, and in, and King George III, his opponent in that war said, if George Washington truly surrenders his sword to the civil authorities, he will be the greatest man ever. Because throughout history, once a person uh, gathers the power to them, they will never surrender. Napoleon wouldn't surrender it. Stalin wouldn't surrender it. And so when you're, te- you know, if you were teaching a, a module on character, tying in a story like that says, oh, I see where it's used. So in other words, Lord Acton's uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, isn't true if a person will hold themselves accountable to character no matter what. You know, it always found it amazing to me that, you know, you, you read – um, and I, you know, I wasn't as passionate about studying the founders until, you know, later in life. Did you, was that with you? Did you, have you always been a student of history? Or did you kind of, as you were like me, when you started diving into leadership, you started kind of going back to the classics and going back to the founding fathers? Yeah. Well, I, I certainly, I loved history. Now I was kind of a sports fanatic, so I liked yeah. sports history more than anything growing up. But once I started digging into leadership, it was just natural to start digging into history Mm -hmm. because history is really the story of character in motion. It's the story of men and women having to make tough calls, standing for principles against the odds. And sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. But it's um, history is philosophy in action. Yeah. And, And so if we're talking about leadership being character in motion, then it's understanding the underlying philosophies that they were using, what their ideas have consequences, understanding the right ideas, studying it through history. Then you can start learning, man, these are the type of principles one ought to live their life on because they have a proven track record throughout history and other principles. Like I see Machiavellian politics all the time and I'm like, yeah, it might gain you for the short term, but eventually nobody trusts you. And to me, what's the point of it? If, if nobody's following you in leadership, then, you know, if you call yourself a leader, but no one's following you, then you're only out for a walk. Yeah. You know, I'm always amazed when I studied, you know, like you, I kind of in this natural progression of looking at history and, and um, I'm just amazed and just blown away about how brilliant they actually were. When you read their writings, it just kind of blows you away and, and you put it in perspective and you look at what you as an individual think about on a daily basis or what we're surrounded by in society. 
it's almost kind of embarrassing, is it not? I mean, they were so smart. Well, they didn't have TV, radio blaring. I mean, we have so many things to keep us entertained that we don't have to think. Uh, and I think most people would rather work for 16 hours or entertain themselves for 16 hours rather than have to think for one. But if you're going to be a leader, then job one is to learn how to think and, and think right about principles and understand what principles to apply. That's what wisdom is, is applying the right principle at the right time. And so to be a leader, you've got to have times of solitude. You've got to have times where you can pull back from the crowd. Now, I've been on the road for the last couple of weeks. And I couldn't wait for last night because I was finally able to sit in my reading chair, pull up a good book and just read and think about the principles and how he was living his life based upon these principles. And if you're not doing that, you're not sharpening your sword. It's like Abraham Lincoln. I think one time he said, if I had uh, uh, a week, uh, five days to, to cut down some trees, I'd spend a couple of it sharpening my axe before cutting. And so many leaders say, well, I got five days and they just go out there and try to serve people. But you've got to make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. And it's going to take some time by yourself studying history, studying the principles. And so you know why you do what you do. So when you get out there, you are sharp. You know, that's kind of segues into, I think, the whole reason of your book, Leadership, the new book that came out. I think that, you know, for me, I told you last summer I gave that I started changing my I guess my teachings and my um, speeches and keynotes started shifting towards more of the historical because, and I started talking about more grander problems that we're faced with, you know, the crisis that we're faced with in America. I believe there's a true leadership crisis in in the United States, in the world. And I opened my presentation, you know, reading from uh, Thomas Paine's The American Crisis, and and I started doing that from here on out. And that and and what's molded in this now reading leadership. What's been gnawing at me and what's been troubling me is that, is that it seems so overwhelmingly, or the challenges, the obstacles that we're all faced with seem so large and almost overwhelming to myself, and it can get me kind of down and depressed. Leadership kind of attacks that problem, right? I mean, it's grand in its vision. It's a parable and a story that kind of highlights the problems we're faced with, but it does offer solutions, right? Am I summarizing the book No, that's, it. that's absolutely right. We, uh, Oliver and I wrote it as a fable. And kind of, you know, how that background happened. I had I walked out to the end of my dock one day and I was just staring out at the water down here in Port St. Lucie. And I realized, man, God has blessed me in so many ways. He's given me a great income, some of the most amazing friends. I get to go teach what I'm passionate about, leadership and helping people grow. And it was just fantastic. And I get to go speak all over the world. So then it hit me. I'm like, you know what? It's like leaders, it, it, by definition, if you're going to be a leader, it requires influence because you don't boss people around. You influence, you encourage. And I'm like, well, that requires freedom. And so what's the point of teaching all these uh, business owners to become successful business owners? If the freedom is lost, all these uh, big fish, so to speak, will die because the water is poisoned. And so then I'm like, well, dang, somebody needs to do something, man. We have to protect society's freedom so that leadership still matters because at, at the end of a barrel of a gun, you don't need leadership. You do it because they told you to. And so, man, we've got to have freedom so that leadership can thrive. And so as I started thinking about somebody has to do something, I said that about three times. And I said, well, dang, I go around the country teaching people to accept responsibility. So I said, well, why don't I take my own advice and accept some responsibility? And that's when I tracked down Oliver because I know he spent 20-some years studying the founding fathers. 
And uh, I love history and, and leadership. And he's he's an educator that loves leadership. I'm a, a, a leadership person who loves education. And so we kind of married those two together and said, we have got to write something, uh, tie it in with these five laws of decline that I use in my business and teach uh, businesses how to turn around. And let's take those principles and let's study and help turn around America and really Western civilization through using uh, checking the five laws of decline. Let's talk about those. For, for our listeners out there who haven't uh, read your stuff yet or are not familiar with the five laws of decline, talk about those and, and, and equate it to where we're at today as, as a nation. You bet. Well, let me just give you an analogy first, then we'll dive into them. It, you know, when I was a kid, I think there was one swimming pool in the small town we grew up in, and we'd get all the kids in that swimming pool, and we'd all run in the same direction. And when we started running, we'd create so much current in that pool that we could lift up our feet and that current would just carry us circling us around the pool because we had such a, a high speed in that current. Well, that imagine that current like a culture. That's the culture of a society. That's a culture in a company. Well, if it's really whipping in one direction, try to all the kids would then try to put their feet down and run against the current. And you wouldn't believe how hard it was, Richard, to run against that current, man. We'd bloody our feet trying mm-hmm. to run against it. We were working like crazy and barely making any progress because that current was pushing so hard against us. That current is the five laws of decline. When you open up the door for the five laws of decline, a, a parasite to start eating on society, man, it gets tougher and tougher over time to fix it. I mean, if you take a look at America just really quick, I mean, it took us 200 years. America, it took us 200 years to get to a trillion dollar national debt. Now we increase the national debt over a trillion every year. So that's the old joke. Well, how did you go broke? Well, slowly at first and then really fast at the end. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so these five laws, imagine them like jets in a pool that are constantly at work spinning the current in the wrong direction. And a leader's job is to get a group together and run against that current fast enough that you can actually overcome the gravity that's constantly pushing down and Richard, you're a pilot, so you'll understand this. I mean, you can take a plane in the air, but that doesn't change gravity. Nope. Gravity is constantly at work at 9.8 meters per second squared or 32 feet per second squared, working, accelerating against you, trying to push that uh, plane down. But through engineering the plane properly, you can create lift and actually overcome gravity. But unless you have an unlimited supply of energy up there, eventually that plane's going to come down or you're going to break through the atmosphere because gravity will always work. And that's the same thing what the five laws of decline are. I don't care whether you look at a society, all societies eventually have failed. Why? Because eventually someone doesn't check the five laws of decline. They get out of control. They spiral so big that it's impossible. It gets, it gets to a point where it's nearly impossible to turn around and it fails. And and so in our culture today, these five laws of decline, what I'm going to describe, in my opinion, are the most essential, most, if we are going to turn around America and really Western civilization, we need to learn these five laws decline and get busy. Leaders need to start accepting responsibility, put systems in place so that we get true governmental leaders because we don't have governmental leaders right now. No. Richard, you and I know this because in any typical business, one of the first things a leader has to do is manage limited resources. He doesn't have unlimited money. He doesn't have unlimited employees. He can't just throw money and employees at things anytime he has a problem. He's got to think. But in government, we don't even have, we don't even expect our government to balance a budget. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that's leadership 101. I mean, right. that's like, well, if you can't balance a budget, you're certainly not going to move up at any conventional company that has to make a profit in order to survive. And yet we've got people getting elected to office year after year and nobody's responsible, OPM, other people's money. And we've got to get it to where, no, you're assigned, you balance your budget or you're up for immediate reelection. And we got to start putting some checks on this crazy uh, unlimited spending that we have going on in government. So how do, you know, it, it all makes sense and I love that, but how, how do we, where do we start? All right. Well, let's walk through. Let's, let's talk just real quickly on the five laws and I'll give you an example of a check on the, how we check the five laws. First of all, uh, the first law, I learned it from a guy named Theodore Sturgeon who wrote a, uh, <clears throat> who gave a talk once to the science fiction writers convention and he was getting attacked and all the science fiction writers were getting attacked because they're saying, well, man, science fiction's terrible. They're not keeping up with the latest discoveries in science. So these scientists were saying the whole thing was a joke. So he got up in front of all of his science fiction writers and he said, you know what? They're right. 90% of science fiction is crud. But then again, so is 90% of anything in the human arts. And man, I, I tell you, when I read that the first time, Richard, that it was like it jumped off the page because that's it. I'm like, that's why so many people in management or, quote, leadership are not getting the job done because they're Sturgeon's Law. There's 10% of the leaders in positions are real leaders that move the boat forward. And there's 90%, going back to that pool example, there's 90% of the, quote, leaders are really just floating in the pool. They don't even have their feet down. They just have titles, but they aren't true leaders. Yeah. And so, I mean, we look at the presidents of the United States and say, well, George Washington, he was a great man of character, and he would have never abused the situation like it's being abused today. Well, that may be true, but Sturgeon's Law says you're not always going to get George Washington's. Yeah. And so since 90% of the time you're not going to get a George Washington, you have to design a system that works with the 90% that at least survives the 90% until another 10% can come in there to move the ball forward. And so many people like, we just need a great leader and he'll fix everything. Well, the problem with the great leader concept is even if you get a great leader, you will give him certain precedents that he will do that when a bad leader gets it, he'll use those same precedents to do bad things. Mm. And so you, it's like, it's so important to start with Sturgeon's law. 90% of anything is crud and we've got to create a system that can survive bad leaders in key positions that won't tank the whole economy, won't tank. We can't give them enough power for them to start, um, centralizing that power because as power increases, freedom decreases. And, and so, um, that first one, Sturgeon's law says, beware, you're not always going to have a great leader. So you better have a design to be able to deal with a poor leadership. That's Sturgeon's law. What about all of us, you know, staying on that principle? And it's almost kind of like it's really derived from Pareto's principle, the 80 20 rule, right? I mean, it's yep, similar, of, very similar. How is that if all of us out there that we're trying to, you know, we think, um, you know, we would all like to think we're in that 10%. Are we all capable of being in that 10% or is it just, I mean? Absolutely. A absolutely. It's not a matter of, you know, talent. I, it, m the second part of Sturgeon's Law, I call it Woodward's co Corollary. Mm -hmm. And it says that 90% of us think we're part of the 10%. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, anybody can be part of the 10% because most of it, it's like um, <clears throat> Thomas Edison said. Genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Right. 
But so it's not a matter of can they, it's a matter of will they. Yeah. And you know, going and speaking all over, I see many incredibly talented people that never really move off center because they won't put their feet down in the pool and run against that current. I see others that everybody says, oh, they'll never do anything. They're too shy. They're too this. But boy, they're so determined that they put their feet down and run against the current, bloody their feet, do the work, and eventually they end up surpassing so many people with, quote, more talent or sharper. So one of the principles I teach, Richard, is it's easier to teach a hungry person how to be sharp than it is to teach a sharp person how to be hungry. Yeah, that's good. That's great. I guess that's the whole thing when I hear the night, when on the surface, when you hear that, that 90 10, you're thinking, well, gosh, I, you know, if, if that many people aren't really cutting the leadership mustard, then how, it's impossible for me to get in there. And I think it's important to realize, like, look, all of us are capable of getting in that 10%. We just have to have the courage and the honesty and the humility to look at it and say that, okay, why, what does it take to get to that 10%? Right. You, you yeah. got it. I mean, I'll tell you, when I graduated from high school, and you can look this up, it's in the Lakeville yearbook, 1985. Here's what it said about Orrin Woodward. They never once said the word leadership in my name in the in the same sentence. In fact, you know, on your senior picture, you usually say nice things about people. They say, you know, destined for success, never met a person they didn't like, a beautiful smile. What they said about me was arguing, arguing early and late. If a line were crooked, he'd argue it straight. <laughs> so I was clearly in that 90%, absolutely terrible leadership. I, I remember reading How to Win Friends and Influence People the first time. And what struck me was, so that's why nobody likes me. <laughs> I, mean, I was an engineer type, loved details, loved numbers. And um, and the, the reason I had four patents is I worked in, in my cubicle, worked out, loved working on parts. They never talked back to me. So getting the leadership field was about as far removed from my comfort zone as you can possibly get. But when you want something bad enough, you change. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, in, you know, we all, you know, leadership is for everyone if they, if they're willing, uh, to learn and to, and to lead and have the courage to lead. So yeah, great. And so you look at America today, Richard, if, if Americans truly still want their freedom, we got to do something. Yes. No, we cannot just continue status quo. All oh, they'll take care of it. Washington cannot fix the five laws of decline are so at work. And when I get through this, you'll understand, but they're so at work. We have got to do something. And I just don't believe it's going to be some bureaucrat making decisions as normal. We truly need a leadership. We need people like you, Richard, to be able to have your voice heard in local um, uh, issues and then moving up and try to create separate this power that's keep continues to centralize in Washington because, you know, we always, the founding fathers talked about limited government and it was a very big deal. They said, all we want government to do is defend us internally, make sure the states don't fight each other and de uh, defend us externally, make sure some enemy doesn't come in and, and attack us. So limited government, but there's no such thing as limited government. If you don't limit the funds because we all know that money and power go together. If you give something more money, it also develops more power because it has more resources it has access to. Well, in Washington, we've given them unlimited ability to tax us. And we've given them unlimited ability to print paper money, which is a real character issue to me. And so if they have those unlimited factors, then where is the limit on their power? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the law of, of plunder. Uh, is it Bastiat's, Bastiat's law. law? Yeah. It leads right into that. Bastiat's law says 
Man will satisfy his wants with the least amount of work. So think about in government, if you said, well, I could tax more, but if I increase the taxes, boy, the people could get mad at me, but I could just print more money and they wouldn't really know what I'm doing. And so uh, Bastia's law says, man is naturally inclined to avoid pain. And since labor is pain in itself, it follows that men will resort to plunder whenever plunder is easier than work. So I look at it as plunder or productivity. There's your two choices. Are you going to go and produce results, which benefits all society, or are you going to plunder off someone else's results, which becomes a parasite on society? And what's happening in our uh, in our government today is because the government has force, it can literally tell one group, we're going to take from you to give to this group. Uh, and another way it does it is says, well, we're going to take from all of us, and we're going to go start a war over here, and we're going to do this. Now, I'm all for I told you earlier, my dad was a Green Beret. I'm all for defense, but I don't believe that we should be playing war all over the world, especially when we're in the process of going broke. We're going to tighten up our budget somewhere. So, I'm, you know, Bastiat's law kind of says beware of the warfare state and beware of the welfare state and make sure that government only does what it's supposed to do, defend us internally and externally. Yeah. And because when you open up Bastiat's law, a business owner says, hmm, I'm going to go by the government and assure that I get a special deal over here. And the government, through the monopolies that they can create, uh, ensure that some business owner has a special deal. Well, then leaders like you and I try to get into that field. And this other business owner uses government to regulate us out of business or at least hinder our chances. Well, that's absolutely crazy because society thrives when there's freedom and everybody can climb to the top of that mountain if they're willing to work, break through that Sturgeon's Law we talked about earlier. And so Bastiat's Law is a serious issue, and we are now at the point where there's 49% of Americans receiving some type of aid from government. Well, it doesn't take ma a, a genius in mathematics to figure out those numbers don't work for long. Yeah. I mean, it's true. You know, you think you, you see how much – the only way that you can – and and I know a lot of people haven't seen this, but, you know, the studies, because we haven't talked about it. I don't see a lot of people talking about it. But, you know, the more that you extend the unemployment benefits, it's been shown that when you, you know, the unemployment would would go down if you didn't extend those un unemployment benefits yes. for so long. Yeah, it's Bastiat's Law. That's a perfect example of Bastiat's Law. If you're going to give me benefits for not working and I have a choice between working or not working and you're going to give me pay if I don't work, then 90% of Americans will choose not to work in that situation, Sturgeon's Law. Yep. So now imagine this. Let's go to the third one, Gresham's Law. Gresham's Law, and by the way, Bastiat's Law comes from a guy named Frederick Bastiat, a 19th century economist, and I love, he wrote a book called The Law, and that's where I got that mm -hmm. one. The third one is from Thomas Gresham, who was a, a banker, and he studied economics, and he came up with Gresham's Law that says bad money drives out good money. If you start printing a whole bunch of fiat paper money, you'll see real gold and silver going to Haydn because they'll use the, the cheap stuff, not the good stuff. Well, that same principle works in government and works in, you'll see it in corporations, where if uh, the corporation starts rewarding people who are doing shady things or things that aren't honorable, an honorable person won't play by those rules. And so they're like, well, you know, I've asked some very, very talented people, hey, have you ever thought of running for office? And I said, are you kidding? I'd never do that because I wouldn't want to have to do the things I'd have to do. I'd, I, I feel I'd have to sell out my character to make commitments to people and, and things that I don't believe in just to get elected. 
So what happens is the bad behaviors are driving out the good people. Mm-hmm. And so now you see a situation where if you look at the founders, the founders were the best lawyers, the best business owners, the most successful landowners. They got together to form that government. Today, the best leaders stay away from Washington, stay away from government because they don't want to have to compromise their convictions in order to get elected. Yeah. So, so Matt, so see this current in the pool. You've got Sturgis yep. law says 90% would do this. Bastiat's law says plunder over productivity if it's allowed. Gresham's law says if it's allowed, the good people start pulling away. Law diminishing return says as it keeps getting bigger and bigger, it's providing less for the size as it's growing, because that's the fourth one is law diminishing returns. Further input yields less output. We keep talking about we need more government. Well, haven't we figured out yet that the more government is producing less for us? The more they tax us, it's society's getting worse off the more we keep increasing government because of the law of diminishing returns. A person in Washington cannot possibly know what's going on in Wichita, Kansas to the same level that you can, Richard, because you are boots on the ground. Right. And so the law of diminishing returns, I mean, this whole example, I studied the Greeks, I studied the Romans, I studied all the historical societies, and I was stunned by every single one of them showed the effects of these five laws decline. Rome was so big at one point, and everything was trying to be run out of Rome. They had taken the provinces, and basically they just reported directly to Rome. Rome was buying all this grain and giving it away to the people of Rome to keep them happy, trying to uh, organize this. They taxed so severely by the end that people were leaving Rome and going to live with the barbarians just to get away from the tyranny of the, the civil uh, services and the military bureaucracies. Wow. And so the law diminishing returns killed Rome, and it's in the process of killing America. And then the last one, law of inertia. Once this current gets going so fast, try to turn around and run against it. It's so strong. Every year that goes by, it's going to be a tougher turnaround for leaders. So I finally said, man, I can't wait any longer. I've got to at least write, write about these five laws and make some suggestions that could check these five laws before it's too late, and then the blood's on my hand because I had some answers and I didn't talk about them. Well, you know, in listening to those five laws, and, and in, and of course, when I read them, read them too, I'm thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I know it. And it almost overwhelms me so much because I see it and I'm like, oh, what can you do? You know, and um, I'll share a story with you, like coming, you know, I'm a political junkie and and my world did resolve around, you know, revolve around kind of like, all this political leadership. And I finally tuned out and away from that. And I started reading, like you said, going back and talking and talking to folks like you and other entrepreneurs out there. And I got to tell you, that's when I got re-energized again, because and there are so many people out there. There are so many stories. There's so many people that aren't following the CNN, the MSNBC, the Fox News kind of cycle, and they're tapped into what's really happening in America. And I think that's where I think what hit me, and, and you hit it on this book, is how we're going to overcome this. How are you going to overcome this kind of these these huge uh, laws of decline, which are in full effect today, is in my opinion, I think you got to tap into the entrepreneur. I think that's the first. There are so many people out there, Warren, that are crushing it and in the face of all the stuff going out there. And I know you see it too. And wouldn't you think that the business, uh, a key to the turnaround is the business leader, the business leader, the business leader slash entrepreneur? You are speaking my language. In fact, uh, Oliver and I in the book, we talked about innovators slash creators versus credentialists. And, you know, a creator can be a credentialist. They might have five degrees and they might be this, but a creator is someone that can go into the economy and create jobs. Government doesn't create jobs. Entrepreneurs do. 
to come up with better ideas. I mean, look at Steve Jobs and look at the uh, the jobs that he created because of his innovations. And, you know, when he left Apple, look how Apple started to collapse until he came back and then they started thriving again. There's a creator, someone who can create through the power of metaphysical ideas. That's what entrepreneurship is. And so we've got to be rewarding entrepreneurs and not with a special deal, but with a fair deal. Give them a chance to go out and do some work and be rewarded for that, not taxed excessively to where people say, you know, if at that tax rate, it's not even worth doing. And so now the entrepreneurs that we do see out there crushing it are doing it just merely for passion because most of their profits are going to be taken away. Yeah. So how do we, how do we, how do we find those business entrepreneur leaders that, and, and get them passionate about, you know, saving the freedoms too? Man, I love this question, you know, because we, de- we decided we were not just going to write a book to talk about the problem. I mean, I've read so many books and I loved what you said earlier, Richard, where you are watching CNN. Eventually you said, man, I got to check out because if you watch CNN and all the stuff, you hear all these debates and all oh, what are we going to do with this? You're talking about the waves. Now, I love going out and, and I love fishing and, you know, I'll go out on the ocean and man, we can see the waves. The wind can blow the waves in a certain direction, but don't follow the waves. Follow the tide. Mm-hmm. The good boaters, they know wherever the tide's going, that's where you're going to end up, not with the waves. And so we can watch CNN and talk about the waves, but the tide are the underlying principles. You know what those five laws of decline are? That's the direction of the tide. Mm. If we do not work on, you know, as a leader, we talk all the time about majoring on majors. Well, the major for our government, for the major for our society, is we've got to check the five laws of decline. So I do not watch CNN. I do not watch. I wouldn't know a lot of the local things because I'm tracking the tide. I'm tracking the underlying principles. And if I know we get being a systems engineer and having four patents in that process, I like to study the underlying systems because if I know I get the underlying system right, the results take care of themselves. Leaders, in other words, are responsible for creating culture and the culture produces the results of an organization. Yeah. Yeah, so say that again. Here, I think that's very important. Say, say that again. Leaders are responsible for creating the culture, and the culture produces the results in an organization. Yep. So uh, using that for society, the culture right now is thriving with these five laws of decline, and we have to come in and as systems thinkers and create uh, – uh, uh, still have the ability for government to do what it's supposed to do, defend us, and then allow freedom to permeate the rest and may the best man or woman win who has ideas in a free enterprise type of environment so society can thrive, entrepreneurs can create jobs, and check this centralization and these five laws of decline that are literally go- growing out of control. Yeah. And they cannot grow forever. You cannot just print money. Economics, uh, even governments eventually have to pay the piper and are responsible for economics. In Rome, they inflated like crazy. In Rome, they taxed like crazy, and it eventually fell because you cannot do that uh, unlimited. So here's the check. You want me to give you – yep. I'll just give you a real quick. And again, we can argue over, well, I think it ought to be this, and I'm fine. In fact, that's all I wanted. All Oliver and I wanted to do with this first book is change the dialogue. Get the discussion around, you know what, let's just not be hopeless. Oh, it's so much going wrong because that's not le- – there's no such thing as hopeless situations. There's only hopeless people in situations. Right. And so I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to be a pessimist. I recognize it's going to be tough. 
I love talking to people like you, Richard, because I know you're a leader and you can help. And that's what we need to get enough entrepreneur leaders together and say, this is crazy. This was not what the founders intended. And before it's too late, let's make some changes. And so let me just give you one scenario. A lot of people would say there's no way government could live on just 10%. But I'll tell you this, any successful business, if it made 10% profit, would be thriving. Mm -hmm. We've taken society and we have government doing so much, of course it can't survive on 10% because we got them trying to do everything. Well, let's just get them back doing the one thing we want to do. You don't need to uh, do all these crazy things. Just defend us. Make sure no, make sure we're strong enough that no other military would want to march on this country. And with nuclear weapons, um, we're probably less at risk in that than we were in the old days. And then the second thing is make sure that states don't fight each other, that we can adjudicate our disputes so that the citizens, we don't have civil unrest within society. That's what we want you to do. The local issues, allow them to be decided in townships, in local get-together town meetings. So imagine t saying that you're only going to get 10% of our money. Uh, society is free. If you make a million dollars, you pay 100000 in taxes. If you make 10000 you pay $1,000 in taxes and, and just 10%. 4% of that 10% goes to the locality. 3% goes to the state. And 3% goes to the federal. Now, right off hands, people are like, oh, 10%, we'd never survive. Well, first of all, I believe by only taxing 10%, our society would double its productivity. You'd see all kinds of things come out of hiding because people wouldn't be trying to hide their money to not be taxed. They would be using it to produce jobs and produce uh, economic growth. So, But at 3%, the government could certainly make sure that it has uh, weapons uh, pointed at our enemies if they tried to attack us, make sure the states don't attack each other. Now, watch this. If the federal government then wants more money, if they say we can't survive on that 3%, we need 6% because there's a threat over here or we want to go into Iraq or we want to go in here. Why not have that leader then, instead of coming back to the citizens and being able to either print money because we say you can't do that anymore, you have to balance your budget. Instead of going to the citizens, it goes to the governors of the states. So the president would have to go to the state governors and say, you have a 3% budget and I have a 3% budget. But I got this idea for a war over in Iraq or Afghanistan, and I'd like to have half of your money to do that. Now, Richard, if you were the governor of Kansas and me as president am asking for half of your budget, not the citizens, your budget, <laughs> you're going to think long and hard before you surrender half your budget and explain that to the people of Kansas. I mean, if somebody invaded our country, of course, you'd give up half your budget. But I don't think you'd do that for me to go have a war over in some country unless you considered it a true military threat to our country's uh, na the nation. And so what that does is that begins to check the five laws because right now, hey, let's go to war over there. We'll print money. We'll tax more. And by doing that, we'll get more centralized power in Washington. Now you've got government checking government, and it would be the first time in history a politician would have to reach into his own pockets to pay for something. I mean, all that sounds great, and you're certainly going to win over, like myself, the libertarians and the conservatives. But what about that massive kind of uh, percent of the population, the progressive side, our progressive friends, our, our more liberal friends, who see, um, you know, and this isn't a new problem. I mean, you think back to the founding, I mean, you had the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, right? Yep. I mean, and, yep. and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I, we want that. But what do you say to um, the the progressives and the liberals out there that, that are – that do look at the world, that government should be more about taking care of, of the masses more. 
Well, what I say is that, you know, first of all, I run a, a it's a all grace outreach. We run a fairly large um, multi-million dollar charity where we give to different charities. I am all for charity. I'm not an uncaring person. Um, what I say, though, is if you have to point a gun at someone to take their money in order to do charity, that's not charity. That's coercion. Right. And when and so if any of the progressive friends uh, believe that we ought to take care of some people, I've got some money I'm willing to give to that cause as well. Let's go do it. And But what I'm saying is government shouldn't be the one doing that. That should be cha- local charities because right. boots on the ground, local charities will do something that the government won't do. The government has an interest in keeping those people dependent because it's able to tax us more and more for doing so. The five laws decline, just like we saw in Rome. They just kept giving free grain to the people of Rome and destroyed the people. You destroy people when you give them handouts. Mm-hmm. You enable people when you give them hand ups. So I'm all for hand ups, not handouts. And I believe local leaders in the Kansas area will do a better issue with charitable, uh, helping people get off. Uh, and get able to be on their own two feet a lot better than some bureaucrat in Washington can with the same issue. So let's not give, if, if the 4% that's at the local issue, that money, if you guys in, in Kansas feel like you want to use that money to give to somebody, or if you want to, as you're gathering and working with other leaders in the local Kansas area, then you say, you know what, you're making some good money and you're only taxed 10%. Let's take actually get these people off of welfare dependence. Let's actually teach them job skills and let's have Kansas be, and you know what will happen? If you do that and make it work, I guarantee you, me down in Florida, I'm going to go out there to Kansas and figure out what you did and create the same type of program. Now we actually have true competition creates cooperation. We have the best leaders enabled at the local levels doing, and when somebody does something right, everybody else will copy it because that's what competition does. Yeah. Well, you're preaching to the choir on this end. I mean, I, I love what you're saying. What is what are some specific things as we wrap up here? What can we do? Obviously, I'm going to buy in your book. has There's 28 solutions that you're talking about in there of some things, at least to get the dialogue started. And there, and there are some ideas in there that that I think should be brought to the, the, the table, and I appreciate you putting it in there. But what can we do if we're listeners? What can we do? What specific things? It seems like I'm one person. What impact can I do? What can I go out through to start you know, changing the world, I guess? Well, I look at it like this. Uh, every avalanche began with one snowflake. Yep. And so when I look at a situation like this, I, again, I'm talking about the tide. I'm not saying, man, let's go get this. Per-. You know, everybody says, well, if we get the right person elected, you can get somebody elected. But if you put them in a system that's a slide, they're going to slide right to the bottom like everybody else. So what we have to do first to change the dialogue is we have to get enough people understanding comprehending the five laws of decline, and then when you hear a suggestion, you immediately say, well, how does that tie in with the five laws of decline? Because I've used the five laws of decline since 2009, and I've helped, you know, turn around several businesses, and it's amazing as study, you study any business that's failing, you'll see the five laws of decline at work. Yep. You study any society that's failing, you'll see the five laws of decline at work. So the first thing is we got to pe- get people educated on the tide, not the waves. And if we can do that, then we can start. Now, if the whole thing falls apart, I told this to Oliver. I said, Oliver, if we write this in 10 years, 15 years from now, it really truly all falls. Well, at least we have a foundation to rebuild. That's good. Yeah, I like that. Well, Lord, I think, you know, I love your stuff. I love the book. 
you know, I could talk about this for hours with you, as you know. Um, you're, you're speaking my language. I hope the listeners out there will, you know, and I think as, as we, as this podcast gains its footing, gains its ground, gains more listenership, I think for me, I think, you know, going in that direction of, of educating, going toward the founding fathers, I think you're going to see more and more of my episodes kind of geared towards that, having, uh, more guests like yourself, self who talk about that. So, um, thank you for, uh, enlightening me, Oren, and, uh, and being a great influence in my life. Thank you, Richard. It was great being on the show. Well, we have to do this again because there's so much more to talk about. So would you be willing to come back at a later date? That sounds great. Warren, thanks. How can they find you? Where where can people find you and your stuff? Let's give a quick plug out for uh, where you're at on the web. Well, the leadership book is 10percentleadershift.com. Uh, and then uh, Oren Woodward, O-R-R-I-N, Woodward blog, orenwoodwardblog.com is my personal blog. Awesome. And I'll have all these links on uh, on my post when I get this interview posted. And uh, again, Oren, it's been a, a true privilege and honor. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Richard. See ya. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.